Hello, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. It's kind of a jumping-off place. You can find out a lot more about what we do and a lot of other things. You will also notice down here to this side of me, there is a giant QR code. That has become very integral to kind of how the show works if you want to get your questions in. The old Mukana system is still robust and in place. And if you want to chat and enjoy the show and vote on questions and do all those kind of things, what, it, what drives office hours, you can use the standard system. But if you just want to toss in a quick question, shooting that QR code on your phone or any other device that will capture it will let you put your questions directly into the queue. They sit there and then our back stage team moves any appropriate questions into the show from there. So it's just a really quick way to get questions uh, into the show system. So shoot and use that as you like. Um, today, our second hour, we're going to be brainstorming the Office Hours website. So if you use it or you haven't used it, if you have thoughts, ideas, suggestions, this is your big chance to input uh, your ideas on features, operations, whatever. The web crew will definitely see all those and who knows, maybe integrate your ideas into the next iteration of the, off uh, iteration of the Office Hours website. That's our second hour. Uh, today, let's see, Alexander is reading. So Alexander, what's our first question of the day? Thanks, Bill. Our first question comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Sony announced new, new displays specifically made for virtual production. One makes these different, and then he's got a link there. Yeah, I didn't have time to take a look at that, but I'm just really fascinated. Sony has been quiet for a while. They, you know, they were one of the, they still are one of the primary creators and producers of production gear. But it seemed like after their heyday, when they seemed to be everywhere and only, they had a quiet decade or so. And it seems like they're coming back with a lot of really cool new products. Chris Fenwick, do you know anything about this particular one? Yeah, I was just looking at the website. I mean, in general, they're trying to get, uh, deeper blacks so that black is black and less reflection. And I don't know exactly what technology they're using for less reflections. Uh, reminds me of a, a story. A, a guy was um, working on a show with years ago. He was a, a lighting director and he had been working with the art director and the art director was trying to get the, the blue on the back wall just exactly right. And he had one of these you know, lighting controllers where you could adjust the colors exactly, uh, the type of lights. And the guy looked over his shoulder and he goes, oh, well, what are those numbers? And he goes, what's well, CMY? And he goes, oh, you can use CMYK values? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, oh, this will be so much easier. And then he said, well, where's the K value? And the lighting director looked at him and he goes, it's light. K is off. You know, that's because that's the black value. Um so, it, I mean, if you're trying to make things look exact, you know, you want a very high quality display. I would also imagine that the dot pitch is very important so that they are, so it doesn't moray for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alexander, you have some thoughts. You know, I'm curious with these LED walls because they're so expensive. At what point do they consider upgrading them? Like, at what point do they consider that the, oh, we've made enough money off of this, we should probably upgrade? I'm very curious because it's not an inexpensive thing that you can just toss in the garbage and replace, even though this is, you know, has substantial improvements overall. Well, I know they, nobody uses OLED in these, but I wonder if there's any burning. I mean, I wonder if, as, you know, if you have a, an LED wall that's, 
five years old, does it still perform as it did when it was new, or do they age I over can, time? I can tell you what happens to old LED walls. They okay. get, it, it, they go, and I know this because a friend of mine was uh, managing uh, all the tech at a at a local church, and they were buying an old LED wall, and it was good enough for them. But in the rental industry, if that's what you do, you rent cameras, you rent walls, you rent whatever. Uh, people always expect you to have the very best. So there is a uh, a pressure in the rental industry to buy the very best, the very newest, the greatest thing. And then the stuff gets handed down to other industries that aren't quite so pressured to have the very newest thing. All right. Hopefully that helped you, Andy. Um, let's take a look at uh, the next question. All right, the next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. What plugins have you found most useful to improve vocal slash speech intelligibility? Alexander Knight, what have you been using? Well, a variety of stuff. I mean, it's hard to go wrong with the Isotope RX suite. So they sell a few different versions of that. Uh, and depending on what your budget is, uh, there are a lot of good plugins in there in that bundle that can help that uh, everything from D reverb to remove the excessive uh, acoustic issues that you've got in that space that you're in um, and other broadband noise band reduction stuff. So RX is a fantastic um app that I would suggest you start with. Uh, and there are, of course, other types of plugins, like you've got the Clarity uh, plugin from Waves as well that works uh, quite well. And to be honest with you, I, the first thing that I find is I always listen to the voice and find out what is the issue, what am I missing, what are the problem frequencies. So I'll always look at an RTA. Um, you know, if something needs to be de-esced, I'll find the frequ common frequencies that need to be de-esced from the voice. Uh, I can make most EQs work. There are some plugins that I prefer over others but I, I think if you, mostly if you know what you're doing with EQ you can make almost any parametric EQ uh, work as far as carving out the, the problem frequencies that you need to carve out of course when it comes to the more complicated stuff like the, like again like the broadband noise reduction there are specialized tools for that so those are things to consider as well yeah, I agreed 100% with Alexander. It's every voice is unique. You're going to eventually try to carve something out that makes that voice stand out. And it's interesting, um, you know, even three or four guys who have the voice in the same exact range or three or four female uh, presenters who have their voice in the same range, their voices will be subtly different in terms of uh, exactly what's necessary to push or pull back. I would say in general, the single first thing that I look for if I'm having trouble is to apply a little compression and try to bring the voice out front. Not a lot. I, this is not a place where you want to slam it with uh, three to one compression or something like that, but a little bit to help make the voice kind of up front a little more can be very useful in terms of enhancing intelligibility. But if the performance isn't there and the words aren't clearly enunciated, you're always going to have a problem no matter what you do. It's going to be tough to bring intelligibility to something that's inintelligible to start with. Those my thoughts anyway. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next question comes from Paul Wauhus in Austin, Texas. A split ergonomic keyboard ripped right from Starfield. ZSA Voyager mechanical keyboard is super slim. Hot swap keys. Talk it up and then he's got a link there. Fenwick knows something about this. Fenwick? Yeah, it's just one of these ridiculous broken keyboards that 
you know, I, I think that there's a, a correlation between sociopaths and the people that use these kind of keyboards. <laughs> like, this, you clearly have no friends because nobody's ever going to sit at your computer and go, hey, let me show you something cool on YouTube. Because nobody can use those keyboards. Cite to a peer-reviewed psychology document or we're not believing you, Chris. <laughs> Come on, Bill. You I know I'm right. <laughs> don't don't. I will say every time publicly. I look down on a desktop and I see a split keyboard or this one of those things has that no are friends. angled out. <laughs> you have no friends. It just looks weird to me. Alexander, your thoughts? Yeah, it looks cool. I mean, just sitting on the desk. It's a great piece of artwork. I'm not about to relearn how to use a keyboard. It just It's too wacky for me. But more power to you if you if you want to try it. it. Doesn't even look cool. It looks ridiculous. Next question, please. I, yeah, it's. I think to me it falls in the line of switching your keyboard to Dvorak rather than uh, the standard outlet. You know, you're going to sit down at every laptop, and unless you load special software or whatever, it's all going to work weird. And it's the same thing about those split keyboards for me. I mean, I want the geometry of my operation of my machine to be the same no matter which computer I'm on and no matter where I am. And uh, this kind of flies a little bit in the face of that liberty and experience with them. I don't have any experience with it, but just throwing this out there that it's it, there's a niche audience that is probably going to love this because of what you can put in the middle and multitasking. I see your face, Chris. I see you just like literally that's that's a stretch. But I, I think that there there could yeah. be a use case for a niche audience where the the multitaskingness like I can see myself you know potentially putting my iPad in the middle of that so that I'm like using it here that I can jump in and out I'm just saying that I think that there is some potential I'll tell you why the iPad down at your hands it's bad at ergonomics you want your, your screen higher my uh, can I say my wife has been complaining she has horrible shoulder and I asked her I've never been into her office, and she explained it. I said, yeah, it, most pain, I'm just, since we don't have a whole lot of questions, I'm going to diverge here a little bit. Most pain that you experience is based, is going to be determined by posture and ergonomics. And so you don't want to be looking down at a screen that's down at the same level as your hands. Okay. I so. will say that I would not be so my for me now again just use case I use the um like I would put my monitor there so it'd be an extension of so I could move things around and so I so not your primary monitor right no not my primary not my primary okay. they, I, I I think it'd be interesting to go to their YouTube or to see how else people are using in this I want to see the just, psychological profiles of everybody that buys this keyboard. <laughs> You're going to make everybody who buys one take an MMPI, which is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory of the 1970s, and it's like 7,000 pages. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. Next question comes from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. Does the Sony LR1 industrial camera make us think that Sony will release studio cameras in a similar form factor to compete with the Panasonic BGH1 or BS1H? Is there any way we can request streaming-focused box cameras to a corporation like Sony? Chris Fenwick, what say you? Yeah, you can be vocal. I mean, seriously, uh, Alex has talked about it many times on the show uh, that, you know, he's gotten uh, companies to, you know, 
prairie dog their their heads just because of the power of Twitter and and uh, the internet. So, yeah, definitely be vocal. I will say this, you know, there was an episode of Mad Men. I was just trying to find it where Don Draper says uh, one of the most powerful. Uh, I think he says like gimmicks or most powerful tools in advertising is new. And you have to think about that with technology because um, take, for example, Jonas's microphone. Jonas is using, that's an SM7B, is that correct, Jonas? So that's a tough sell because that mic is, what, 30 years old? At least 20. I mean, I can't, I don't even know. That's a real, Bill... How old is your mic? How long have they been selling that? Uh, the mic? 416, 40 years. Yeah. So it's really difficult to make something that's that's uh, timeless, okay? Like people are still buying SM7Bs, the MK, Elemento 17, whatever that was. Uh, so in lieu of making great products, quite often corporations make new products because new is a powerful marketing term. And sometimes when you look at a company like Sony, where I think we've even talked about it, it's like they have so many different things. Like what is the A7-1790s or A7XY, LMNOP, whatever. They just, they feel they have to have something new. And so for us as consumers, we need to be careful with our hard-earned money that we're not chasing our technological tail, just buying the new, a new thing just because it's new. You know, that it's the, what the kids call it, FOMO, fear of missing out. Like, oh, is there a new one? I have to get it. I have to get it. So it might be a great camera. It might be just a new camera. I don't know. I, I'm super skeptical when people have too many products on the, on the table. By the way, Chris, I wrote down prairie dogging their heads because that's one of the best idioms I've heard in a long time. Well done, sir. I am moving to Jonas. You said something really important in your question. It's an industrial camera. There's a really specific use case for this type of cameras. And most of them, most of the time, they're mounted on a a platform. So like a UAV, some form of an attended vehicle. And could also be a robodoc or something cooler like that or a drone. It might just be something that goes on on rails. And it's intended to produce really specific imagery that allows a remote technician to say, hey, this thing needs to be managed, serviced, it's broken, we can't drive people over that bridge anymore. I think it shows that they are capable of doing it, but I don't think they have too much of an interest in doing more of these types of cameras and like, look at the Sony lineup. It's already like... How do you even know what camera to get? They have like, here's this camera that's like basically the same than this camera and it matches really well with that camera because it's basically the same but in another form factor. Um, It would be cool for them to do a box camera like the BGH-1, but then there also needs to be a really specific use case and you need to have the trust of that community who you would use it. um, And like the Canon isn't as popular as the BGH-1 and Panasonic had that kind of uh, community behind them when they released the BGH-1. A lot of filmmakers, a lot of people that rigged out their GH-5s. Um, I don't think Sony uh, would have that specific support, but who knows? And yeah, you can uh, just buy a whole lot of Sony gear till you have your own wrap, 
and you can tell your app that you would buy a whole lot more of Sony gear if they had a box camera. Now, there you go. Hopefully that gave you some ideas, Samuel. Next question. Next question comes from Samuel Nord, or sorry, that was the last one. Andy Korkendorfer from Vera, Florida. How was this immersive ballroom entrance created? And then he's got a Google Drive link there. Did anybody pull it up? Jonas, do you have some thoughts on it? I looked at it, at it and it looks like it's one of those uh, Instagrammable exhibitions. The name is escaping me right now, but it looks like there's uh, either water. There's one version where they have water on the floor, so it reflects. Or it's a lot of um, LED filaments hang hang from the um, from the top of the ceiling, and then you have something that's reflective. Um, don't think you could just build that in a ballroom, but it looks really cool. Yeah, that's a that's a great look. I remember what the music video for Florence and Machine. One of them, they did a beautiful floor fill, but they used actual water because that was part of the choreography of the dance. It was really nice. Uh, anyway, hard to work with. Obviously, you have to have a stage set up for it because you got to get the water in and out. But the virtual version of that would be visually very striking. Chris, you had thoughts? Yeah, I've done a lot of shows. There's this one producer in uh, Northern California, he's, he's amazing. Uh, but he's done a lot of really interesting stage entrances. Um, one, one thing that he does as he'll, and if you think about it, you walk into a theater and you look, you're looking at the back of everybody's heads and then there's the stage and the screens, et cetera, et cetera. He did, he did one where he took, he spun the whole room out and the entrances were through the screen. So it was a it was a nine screen array across the front of the front of the room, actually kind of the back of the room, and two of those were pairs of one by one aspect ratio screens that swung open. So when it closed, it was a two to one aspect ratio, but it split, and that happened twice across the room, as I recall. And people would walk out of the screen, and they're looking at the audience, and it wasn't until they turned around that they went. Oh, Look at all these giant screens. And so thinking about how people enter a room is really, uh, it's really an interesting twist on theatrical presentation. And just an example that everything needs to be thought about, including the entrance to how to get people into an event. Um, Thank you all for adding questions. We have a solid group of questions to start with, but we can always use more, which means your questions count. They're always important. So if you understand the Mukana system of getting your questions in there, please uh, use that. And please do vote up the questions. Uh, if you like a quick access right here on your screen is a QR code. You can shoot with any uh, QR code capable device, and that'll take you to an instant question inset. That goes through somebody to make sure that just since this is a general act, access thing that nothing gets in there that shouldn't, but eventually they get moved over into the regular question queue where they can be voted on like everything else. So your votes always count. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, for a small studio setup, can you mix Dante traffic with other TCPIP traffic on the same VLAN? John Preto, start us off. I have one one gig network and I have Dante traffic. This traffic right here is running Dante on the X32. I have NDI traffic. I have 11 Nest cameras running, and I have 50-some IP devices on my network. I don't have any problems. They're not on a VLAN. They're all on the regular LAN. 
So uh, unless you're doing something more than that, I don't see any issue. Jonas. Yes, you can. But as soon as it matters, you probably shouldn't. Because this is one of those issues that a lot of technicians like, oh, it works. Yeah, and then I we see so many virtual events fall apart because people only think about sunny days when everything works. And if you don't think about the rainy days when, I don't know, Windows decides to update or macOS decides to update and they have a great feature where they spread the update of a multicast stream across the network. Um, you should for sure manage your network, have enough bandwidth, make sure you manage your multicast, disable all the things that you need to disable, like uh, EEE and all that type of things. And then you should be fine with a couple of sources. It's the same with NDI, like you're fine with a couple of sources. As soon as it gets into the higher source count, it gets harder. And especially if you have a, only a cheap router or switch, then it's also really hard to debug it. So if this is just your hobby, it's totally fine to experiment with it. And if you run into limitations, then you have learned something where the limitation is. But if it's something that matters, think about how do you solve an issue if there's an issue with your networking? What can you do? Like, can I segment it off into a VLAN? And if you already have a VLAN there, I would just create another VLAN since you already seem to have a switch that is VLAN capable and not just use an untech port. What an excellent day for idioms. I love sunny days versus rainy days as a production metaphor. Well done, Jonas. Let's move on to the next question. Next question comes from Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas. YouTube and office hours now generate closed captions. How do you get a full transcripts from the captions? And how does the office hours show reader pronounce words so the closed captions spell them correctly? This is two in one question. <laughs> Jonas, help us out here. It is, there's an API you can use. There's also little tools that allow you to uh, download a VTT or an SLT file from YouTube. Um, most likely you need to wait at least um, till our live stream is done and then it gets converted into an on, on-demand video. After that, you should be able to download it and you can also click on see full transcript and just copy paste it out of there. As to how the reader pronounce words that this picks it up, it's the YouTube algorithm is getting better and better at detecting those words. I don't think Bill does anything special since he noticed that uh, we turned on captions. He doesn't uh, take longer pauses or something. A great microphone quality already helps. Like if you look at the worst situation where you YouTube captions is totally failing, that's because you have a lot of noise and not as much signal. So like with everything, if you have a great signal to noise ratio, you just have good signals like we all have with our microphones that will already help the algorithm to be able to caption it better. And that's one big part of it. We don't have any background music. We don't have any sound effects or something that all really helps. And then the questions, how they're written also depends. Like if it's a really wordy and badly written question, it will also struggle to understand that because the machine learning will try to match it to a sentence that it knows. It tries to predict a little bit what the next thing is. So if it's poorly written, 
then it's also harder to detect because then you need to actually detect the world and you can't go off context with the other worlds. Yeah, that's been my experience too. It's really interesting. Um, I Since I do a lot of captioning, uh, years ago, it was really hard and it would make all sorts of mistakes, the different forms of there, you know, over there versus they own it there. Um, it's gotten better and better. And I think it's exactly what Jonas is saying. These large language models and the machine learning is figuring out context for things. But I've had exactly the same thing. The worse the articulated sentences in terms of sentence structure, the more of a challenge it is to get it right. And it seems to me even at 99% or 99.5%, you're still looking at mistakes every hundred or so words. And that always means that what it, when you're trying to automate something direct to air, it's always going to be a challenge. Um, Whenever I possibly could, I know it's not always possible, but I would try to put a human in there if you're looking for a clean transcript out. If not, just budget the amount of time, even if everything seemed to go well. If you go back through an auto-captioned or an auto-subtitled piece of work, you will find lots of small errors and things that can be improved. Sometimes it's, you know, unnatural pauses that give sentence breaks where they shouldn't have and you can do better if you look through it. So we always budget the time for a human being if we're going to do something live and then try to send out a post-live show product that's one of the areas we definitely look at saying, let's get this right so that nobody has to be concerned about whether or not the captions are accurate. Let's move to the next question. Next question comes from Brett Below from Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, does anyone on the panel use or have an opinion on Zoom's mail and calendar client? Is it a worthwhile replacement for apps like Outlook, Spark, Fantastical, or Google's web interface? I doubt it. And the reason I'm saying that, I, Zoom does fabulous work. And I'm sure that they are looking to get more and more people into their ecosystem to do as much of their work as possible. Uh, they have a lot of people who spend a lot of time in Zoom. So being able to add these features are great for the people whose ecosystem depends on that particular app. But boy, almost everybody who's been in computer for any length of time has significant mail, particularly calendar uh, calendar apps. And sometimes the data in those goes back decades. Um, and so the idea that you would swap to something new is a real hard lift for most of the people I know. I know the idea that I would get out of my regular mail servers and start a new one. I would lose so much in terms of historic data that it's a really hard switch. If if you haven't been in computing that long or you, you spend your entire working life depending on Zoom, then I can see somebody wanting to keep everything inside of that environment. But boy, I think it's a hard lift to get people to change. And that's just my personal opinion about everything. Let's get to the next question. Next question comes from Clive Kitchener in Souk, BC, Canada. Why is a fiber optic internet connection considered more secure than a standard coax cable connection? Still ones and zeros up and down. John Preto, give us some thoughts. Photons are much harder to deal with than electrons are. It's it's much harder to tap into a into a fiber optic than it is on a a regular copper line, and 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 those taps can be detected on a fiber optic much easier than they can on a copper line. So that's one reason. They, it still can be done, but it's much harder to do it on a fiber than it is on a copper line. 
I remember seeing test things where you don't have to clamp onto the copy. You just put the the readers nearby and it can still read what's going down the copper line. And that's virtually impossible. But anyway, Jonas, your thoughts. And the biggest difference is it's not ones and zeros. Like we talk about light with the fiber optics and we talk about electricity with your coax cable. And that's where all of those benefits come from that John mentioned light you if they if you cut into the fiber and you try to get some light out of it you will see that there's less light hitting the receiver on the other end that's how you could detect such a tab with the electricity in theory you can try to do it but there's much better tech there and one of the things also with fiber is it's the much newer infrastructure like if we just talk about the infrastructure of your isp if you use fiber the infrastructure will be much newer. It will be much more reliable than the old coax. It's one of the things that we notice the most here in Germany is all the fiber stuff just keeps working better than all of the other copper stuff just because it's the new thing. It has the new routers. It has the new backend. And that also helps with uh, stuff like this. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. My Logitech Zone wireless headset died after four long years of corporate Microsoft Teams calls. I like the idea of Shock's OpenCom 2 UC, but the proprietary charging connector gives me, gives me pause. Please talk me into or recommend another option. Fenwick, have you used these? I haven't used it, but I, I checked it out on uh, b and I don't think it's a proprietary charging. I think the the little dongle that comes with it is like a transmitter. Now, if it's it also it says the thing works for like 16 hours once you charge it and I can't actually see how you charge it. I'm uh, sorry. But if it's used as a proprietary uh, transmitter, there's a plus side and a negative side. The negative side is you have to plug this thing into your computer and Jonas, come on, man. Your mic's up. You forgot the mute. You have to plug this thing into your computer. You got to take up a port. Uh, number two, sorry. Number two is uh, not like I've never accidentally left my mic open. Uh, <laughs> number two is it's uh, it may actually be a better connection because you're not on top of all your Bluetooth and whatnot. And Bluetooth, you know, connection can be you know problematic at best. So I don't know. The other thing is, if the other thing works so well, just get the other thing. Just buy another one. Jonas, did you storm off to get a shots open com to UC? Is that is exactly? That what you... <laughs> yeah, I had I have a lot of open comms because they're really great if you work on site and you have someone remote in your ear because they allow you they use bone conducting so they allow you to sit on top of existing headphones. You can still monitor your mix. You can still work, and really important if you work anywhere where anything gets built, you still hear if someone calls hold. Wait there for a second and you don't just walk into uh, someone. So it's really great for that. Um, as for charging, yes, it's kind of proprietary, but it's also like not because it's like two pins that deliver DC voltage. You could solder it yourself if you really want it, if you're really concerned about repairability. And Amazon, like I lost all of my charging cables and Amazon has cheap replacements. So that's great. Um, what Chris mentioned about the Bluetooth, one of the great things with um, the OpenCom UC to UC 
is um, you can have multiple devices connected to it. So I have my phone and my uh, laptop connected to it and whatever place audio gets a preference. And they solve one big problem for Windows and typical Bluetooth connections. Um, if you use the microphone, normally it doesn't allow you to use the stereo mode of Bluetooth anymore. With the little plug that they give you, it does allow you to do that. So you get high quality microphone sound while still getting like the music quality Bluetooth into your head, which I just love. It's It has been really great. It's one. And the um, charging, it is amazing. Like I charge them for an hour and suddenly they keep like you forgot that they are still on. I put them on, I try to turn them on, and they tell me that they are turning off. And it's like, oh, you've just stayed on for five days now. It's they're kind they're great. Um yeah, I would highly recommend them. All right. A direct from someone who uses them. So it sounds like a good solution. Let's move to the next question. Next question comes from Jonas Dottel. Update on what the field team will bring to IBC 2023 for coverage. Excellent that you brought this up, Jonas. Do you know uh, you're over there in Europe? So uh, tell us what you know. So one of the interesting things with this year is that we are kind of building our kit ourselves. So we have like a Pebbling router that will allow us to do bonding. We do. We are going to bring two live U solo pros. Or nice. plus. I'm not sure if it's a pro or plus as a backup. But the Pebbling will allow us to uh, bond to our bonding server in Frankfurt. Uh, we have since it around through Rotterdam to Frankfurt. And then we are building everything around the BGH1. It's basically a GH5 in a box camera that we are rigging out. So we have the uh, video assist on top. And then we're going to get some handles and a monopod. So you can put it on a monopod. And then there's this whole contraption here with cables that is all DTAP cables. Because um, we're powering the whole rigs of these DTAP batteries. And one interesting thing is that we now, initially it was all decided that we use one DTAP battery, but we can't get a DTAP battery that's large enough to Amsterdam because the people that have them are flying in and you're only allowed to bring up to 100 volt uh, watt hours of batteries in your flight. So there's that problem. And then for the actual encoding, we use the Epiphan pearls and you see I'm still uh, working on some cables for it because it needs a specific voltage and DTAP drops its voltage but the cool thing with these is we'll be able to send out SRT to the office house infrastructure and one of the field teams will send two cameras it's just two 1080p feeds left and right to each other and then we're going to split that uh, in the office house infrastructure if we get time to have a second camera yeah, that's basically what we're going to bring for IBC. Everybody is really looking forward to next week. It should be fabulous. Um, and so uh, between the two hours at the top of the hour, you will see uh, our video roll about what's going to be happening at IBC. So for more information, just hang in for another 20 minutes or so, and you'll be able to get uh, an update. We're really looking forward to this. It, it's always great to see these trade shows, and we'll have a unique perspective on it. And you get to interact through office hours, because at least one of the days, I'm, I think it's Tuesday, but I might be wrong about that, that the show is going on. We'll be having our show live from the show. So that'll be really exciting as well. Uh, Chris Fenwick, you had some thoughts? I have a question about the battery flying with battery things. <clears throat> I don't fly anymore, so I don't, I'm just curious. Uh, 
who's regulating how big of a battery you take on the plane? Like, if Funny I just throw ask. the if I just threw it in my suitcase, are they going to dig through it and look look at look up the model number on B and H and go, oh, this is too many milliamp hours and confiscate it? Or how does I'm I'm not trying to advocate anybody sneaking big batteries on planes. I'm just curious how that works. It's anybody a great know? question because you can't. You have to put the batteries in your uh, carry on, and your carry on gets inspected uh, by the security. So which what happens they if have, you do put the battery in your checked luggage? Wouldn't it just end up looking like a big ball of lead and they're going to open up your suitcase and look at that? Well, if you put like a label on it, maybe that said, you know, this is not a bomb or something. Maybe it'll get through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure that will happen. No so bad guy would have ever thought somebody, of that. <laughs> somebody did open your suitcase and they'd go, oh, well, clearly it's not a bomb. It's labeled right here. We, no, I think they'll probably go. detect it in your checked bag. And then it would be interesting to see if security actually cares. Again, I'm not in theory, the airline. I'm just curious. The airline is who enforces it, and you have to call the airline if you want to take more and ask them really nicely. But then also, there's like a 10 kilo uh, carry on limit on a lot of flights now. I wonder if, like in the U.S., if you're got a media pass, they might be a little more gentle on battery carriage and stuff like that. So it's just interesting. These are things we have to figure out. I don't having a press badge and accreditation doesn't hurt like yeah, you're still talking to really humans and yeah they'll have some common sense yeah, going to the oversized so. luggage counter if they have one some some airports do is is helpful too aren't they isn't that one of the reasons we're moving kind of away from lithium ion to lithium polymer is it because it, they don't burn up as much because that was one of the big things when you have a lithium fire it's almost impossible to put out and in an airplane that's you know certainly in a cargo hold that would be a disaster I, so. I, i'm just curious i wonder if i wonder if we know somebody who's ever been you know stopped at the gate or stopped you know or like got to their location and a, and a friend little note from tsa sorry your illegal battery has been confiscated or if somebody yeah. shows up with cuffs at your hotel room door I'm just curious. Thankfully, I haven't had to travel with big batteries in a long time, so they this don't why, really This is this part of the reason why I gave up on flying. I just don't yeah, do it you. anymore. All right. Well, we've run this for a little bit. Let's move to the next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. The Dyson Zone solves urban areas' two biggest problems, air and noise pollution. It's only $949. Will it catch on? Check out Wired's <laughs> review, and then he's got a link there. The Dyson Zone, they've moved from vacuum cleaners to noise pollution and combined them, it looks like. Jonas, have you seen this? I'm just glad that those are the only two issues left we have with big cities. Uh, <laughs> honestly, like yeah. noise and sound, noise pollution and like pollution in itself. I think I can deal with those. I yeah. didn't know that big cities have come this far. Um it's an interesting device, and the people that tested it say it does help a little bit. But I think, like uh, like Chris always likes to say, that solving it's fixing the problem, but not solving the problem. Like we have other ways to fix pollution and noise pollution as well. Like I don't think if strapping a headset to everyone's face is the better idea. 
I don't know, at $949 U.S., it's going to solve the problem of them getting better quarterly results, maybe. Uh, let's go to John Preto. Paul, please get a Dyson Zone and then get that split keyboard and take a few pictures and send those to Chris. <laughs> I was just going to say, there's an absolute correlation between the people who wear this headset and the people that buy the split keyboard. Okay? I'm just going to say, 100% correlated. Causation has ensued. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. Alexander, how do you like the Soundcraft UI 24? I have a UI 16 that I love, but it won't stay connected to the Ethernet for more than 48 hours. It seems I have to reboot it every time I connect to it. That doesn't sound good. Alexander, start us out. (laughs) I have only had this for about a week. I've sold the UI 12 and the UI 16. I know the other models have some problems with the Wi-Fi modem, so... There are lots of people that have complained over the years because these products have been out for a while about the the hotspot modem. I don't know if it affects the Ethernet, though, but I know the UI24 has a completely def- different network card that is more robust, and Soundcraft says that it's designed to run 24-7. The other ones have some problems, so hopefully that is not, you know, affected affecting the ethernet and it's just the hotspot stuff uh check your firmware the latest 3.0 firmware update is what you want to have they have fixed a lot of bugs they've also introduced a lot of new features on that as well uh beyond that if you haven't reached out to soundcraft you may want to check with them and see if it's under warranty or not but uh, so far it's been pretty stable the last week i am only using a hardwired connection to it you know the the preamps on these things they're they're pretty good uh they use their their studer preamp technology they're pretty good preamps they have, there's lots of dsp processing power i do find the usb interface the multi-channel interface is pretty limiting though so one thing to note with these things is because it's got a 32 in 32 out interface you have no control over the usb sends so the first uh input on it what's sent to the computer is going to be your master stereo bus so um it limits how you can do a mix minus also the usb sends are pre-fader pre-mute so if i hit a mute button on here it won't actually mute me in zoom so i can't use the usb interface for that reason so all, all sorts of little workarounds but to wrap that up the hardware sounds really good so i'm pretty happy Jonas. There's one really important thing if you are setting up a UI mixer. Someone is going to tell you you should go to ui-mixer.io on your local network. They decided that it's really clever to use a real domain name on your local network for your mixer. One of the issues you're going to run into is if you type in that host name and you're not av- and it's not available on your local network, Suddenly, your PC will say, hey, that looks like a domain. Let's go to that domain. And you will land on a domain that's not controlled by Soundcraft, that's not controlled by a good, known good actor, that's controlled by someone who who right now has placed ads there that make it look like you should just click there to connect to your mixer. Don't. Don't download what it's on. Make sure you connect with the IP address of your mixer. To find out your IP address, you can ping that domain while it's online or you just go into your router check the ip address there but please just don't use that domain it's one it's the worst design you could ever use as a basic host name for your device it might have come from an era where .io wasn't a domain yet 
but still it's i don't understand how that has not been fixed and it's a real security concern because if you're not as technical and don't realize it you just refresh your page after powering off your device and it hasn't booted suddenly you're on a weird website that it's on the internet that an attacker has hijacked alexander knight yeah, that's interesting. I haven't haven't actually run into that. Uh, I know out of the box it actually defaulted to a static IP address, so that's how I'm accessing it. Uh, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I would definitely only use the IP address to access it. One thing I did discover, which is really cool, if you are going to get these, if you have a Stream Deck and you have BitFocus Companion, there is a UI uh, plugin for that, uh, uh, for BitFocus Companion, and I've, I've been using it to configure access to the buttons, and it works absolutely flawlessly. I can access pretty much everything in the interface and do everything I want. So it is very, very powerful for that reason. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes from Joaquin Matus in Imperial Valley, California. Sony is announcing a new product in their Cine Alta line called Burano, September 12th at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, the Cine Alta line currently consists only of the top end of their cine, cinema cameras, Venice and Venice 2. What would you like to see in this product? Big, 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 big question. I hadn't heard about this before. I saw this question come up, and I just went to the website, and they've got all sorts of uh, look at this. Here it's coming, and it looks like it's going to be some sort of a brand new uh, large form factor camera. Uh, it, it, the Venice line is making a lot of movies in Hollywood. I mean, it's it's a serious production camera for people interested in movie making and things like that. Now, whether this is a smaller version or just different in its configuration, I haven't heard yet. I imagine there's a lot of interest in it. You know, Sony really has been doing a tremendous amount of development and they're even low-end cameras. We've, you know, seen them, the fact that they're taking some of their superb autofocus thing and putting it into different kinds of smaller cameras that we can use for web kind of stuff. That's been impressive. So if they continue this, they're obviously kind of taking this let's refresh everything idea to their big cameras. Uh, again, if it adds something to the Venice and Venice 2 line, maybe that's more affordable, and I'm guessing here, uh, that would enable a lot of people who don't have the budgets to run a full Venice workflow to get into the game. So we'll definitely be talking about it, I'm sure, um, next week in the in the midst of, and it may be, end up being a huge thing to talk about at IBC. Maybe that's why they're uh, releasing it on September 12th. I think that's in the midst of IBC, so that may be part of what's going on here. Let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida asks, I grew up with Dr. Zettel's book at SF State. But how do folks teach live TV directing now? Chris Fenwick, how would you teach someone to direct live TV? The television production handbook, is, uh, Zettel's book is currently in the 12th edition. And I used it in the, in the mid-80s uh, when I was in school uh, taking TV classes. So um, it's been around for a long time. I would, I would still recommend it. Um, but live directing is something that you... You can't really learn it from a book. You gotta, you gotta spend the hours. But I think we talked about this earlier this week or last week. We did. Had a long you gotta, you gotta put the hours in, and uh, you wanna watch great people. And it doesn't hurt to watch bad people too. I think I learned to direct 
by switching shows for, uh, there was a, a few years, about four or five years, where I worked with different directors um, like all the time. There'd, there'd be a week we'd go by and I'd work with five different directors. And you pick up ideas and styles from the good ones and you and you definitely learn from the bad ones as well. And uh, there was a point where I, you know, I stepped out of line a little bit. The director I was working for had a particularly bad day and I kind of cornered the executive producer of the show and I said, what do I got to do to direct your show? And uh, he was a little taken back by it, but by the next season I was, I was directing the show. So you got, you got to put the time in, but Zettel's book is a classic. I, I didn't, I tell you, I didn't realize Zettel had been a professor at SF state, Andy, and he started his career in the Stockton area and worked at KPIX in San Francisco. So Zettel knew the ropes. So what he wrote was, uh, you know, it's a good book. It's still, I will say it's still worth looking at. Absolutely. If you want to see the top end of this and see why it's so complicated to do this stuff, I know there's a couple of videos on uh, YouTube, particularly Super Bowl halftime show live direction um, at the one where Bruno Mars and uh, Chris Martin of Coldplay and others popped up. It is a master class in watching how a absolutely top-level show with gazillions of cameras and hundreds of cues that have to happen literally on the instant they're supposed to be switched to takes place. If nothing else, it's just fascinating to, to kind of be over the shoulder of the tech director and listening to comms while something at that level takes place. Fun to watch. Look it up on YouTube. You'll enjoy it. Next question. Next question comes from Josh. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. What tools are available to display viewers' comments on screen for a live stream? What options for Zoom or multi-stream viewers? Tools available to display comments. Well, there's one we use every day. Uh, <laughs> we use the Mukana interface, which Alex has developed for specifically for this show. Uh, and it kind of it's it's fabulous in that it's a very automated system that takes the Q&A from Mukana and literally moves it into the show as something that can be brought up and down. Now I know there are additional tools that can do that and and at this point Mukana is not a publicly facing piece of software. It's still in development to a certain degree, but the hopes are for it eventually to get out there. And for those of you who uh, have been around the show for a long time, I think if you have specific use cases, Alex is always open to talking to people about making that available such that you can maybe get a, an idea. John Preto, do you know of others? I think I think Jonas has hand raised on this. I Didn't Andy say that shortcuts or, or ISA or one of those Zoom-based application was going to support comments now, bringing them in? Oh, that'd be interesting. You know, it, it, part of the thing is this, there's so many comment engines out there. So you're just taking them from YouTube comments or is it just from inside the show or whatever? People want to aggregate comments from a lot of things and bring them in and allow them to uh, to go there. Oh, there we go. Jonas has a couple of links here for uh, Josh's question. Uh, he has a couple of GitHub links. So if you can get to the panel chat in Mukana. Uh, or in the the show's back end, somebody might want to take those if it's appropriate. And uh, oh, Chad looks like Chad's posting them in there. So look for the links uh, from Jonas Dottle of uh, ways to do that. That might answer your question. Let's move to the next question. Next question comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. What tools are? Yeah, I think that's the same the one. 
Yeah. It didn't cycle for some reason. Andre Duell in Berlin. I want to get 6x 1080p outputs from Zoom ISO to vMix via NDI. Should I invest in 10G Ethernet switch and NIX? If so, which models are recommended? Alternatives? John Preto is going to help us out here. John? So any network that I'd be building today, I would build at least on 10 gig, maybe maybe higher. I mean, with 2110 coming, uh, and Dante, Dante AV are super hungry. One Dante AV feed could be 700 megabits per second, just one. Um, and so you need a you need a ton of headroom there. Um, some of the some of the Unify stuff has 10 gig. They have 10 gig backbone um, aggregator switches. Um, but you know, you're going to end up spend, spending more money on networking than you do on your audio and video gear, unfortunately. Um, but I would, <laughs> I would look at at least 10 gig, 10 gig that would give you some headroom. Um, uh, you know, Cisco is, is probably one of the leaders in, in that space. So you're always safe with, uh, Cisco. There you go. Uh, let's move to the next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Logitech just rolled out a webcam, conferencing cam, for two grand. How will this play out? And then he's got a link there. Yeah, it's interesting. We'd never seen this. Although the webcams were way less expensive than than I would call more serious cameras. But boy, is that changing a little bit. John Preto, have you looked at this one? So um, I've been doing video conferencing since 1996. Anytime I see a camera like this, I see failure. That's all there is to it. I've removed so many of these dedicated, super expensive cameras out of conference rooms. I can't tell you how many of these things have been pushed into the corner and never used. That's what's going to happen. Are they just too complicated to use? Or what what are some of the factors that cause them to fail so badly, do you think? Too expensive and they're too hard to use. Okay, so it's the user interface doesn't isn't conducive to people actually being able to use the things once they install them. Is that a question? Well, I just I, that was a oh. comment about is that is that one of the things you know I see that with uh, podiums that look like we'll make it real simple. We're just going to install three buttons and everybody can use it. But I can't remember the name of that back end that is so complicated that unless you have a PhD in electrical engineering, it's very hard to get it to the point where those three buttons actually always function the right way. I I did a presentation yesterday at a local IT company. And it took us 45 minutes to get my phone connected to their screen. Yeah, see, and just like, in some ways, installations are always a snapshot of the budget and the current level of technology when that installation is done. And boy, things change so fast in this industry that I've had the same kinds of problems. You know, do you have an eighth inch jack for my audio? Oh no, we didn't think about that. And you're going, what, really? Uh, just, you know, Alex occasionally considers talking about it as ball handling skills, just the basic. What will people actually need to bring in? They'll need to bring in laptops to do presentations. Do you have a way to get audio out of it and to get, you know, HDMI out of it? it used to be VGA or other things. The form, You know, whatever format you need, can you get it out of that and into something that the system can see? And it's just astonishing to me that, that there are so many misses in so many conference centers on those basic basic skills let's go on to the next question next question comes from jack cannon from phoenix arizona what's the most affordable mixer option to get into dante audio 
John, what do you think? This is a really good question. So I don't know what, and and Alexander might know. I don't know which which mixer is the least expensive that has Dante built into it. The XR32 has the card that's five hundred dollars. So with the mixer and the card, you're right about two grand. But you can use the the Audinate Avio line to connect to any mixer. That would be the way to go. Yeah, I would. I, that's what I was just thinking. Alexander, do you have other alternatives, or is that the one? Uh, well, I think I'd have to compare the prices, but I'm pretty sure the new Yamaha DM3 mixer, which has Dante, uh, would come in cheaper than that because it looks like on Sweetwater in the U.S. it's uh, 19.99, so probably cheaper than buying another mixer with an expansion card. Okay, hopefully, Jack, that helped you. Let's move on to the next question. Oops, you're muted, Alexander. Next question comes from Chester Sweeney the third in Las Vegas, Nevada. Which cameras to use and not to use for up-close cooking? Uh, I think you would want a small pan-tilt zoom because um, unless it's a fixed overhead shot and you're just looking for the top of the range, the biggest deal is the environmental protection, if you can do that. Um, my wife used to work on a local TV show, and they had cooking things, uh, de- cooking demonstrations. It was a daytime television show. And along with the angled mirror over top to allow a floor-mounted camera to get a shot uh, down at the dishes being cooked, uh, and that has now been largely replaced, those huge overhead mirrors with individual pan-tilt zoom cameras that can be positioned to get a shot of a particular boiling pot or something like that. But if they're overhead-mounted cameras and you're over something that is actively really cooking, that means steam and all sorts of other stuff is going to be rising up. Those cameras would need to be either shielded, uh, put inside of some sort of a shield so that they don't pick up. I mean, you know, let's be serious about it. When you're cooking, boiling soup or something like that, or boiling a chicken in a pot, you get globules of fat and things like that that go up with the steam. And that can attach to camera lenses and make it kind of a little bit of a nightmare for maintenance overall. So that's one of the things to think about. Um, I would think those inexpensive pan tilt zoom cameras, particularly the, you know the Obspots and the rest of the I can't remember the rest of the brand names, we see a lot of them would be really useful in that circumstance. Particularly if your budgets are such that you could replace them uh, relatively often as they as they get into that. I'm sorry, why why does everything look like it has Vaseline on the lens? Well, because it's got an equivalent to Vaseline on the lens at this point. Hopefully that was able to help you, Chester. Some thoughts? Let us, you know, drop back after you set this up and let us know how it's working. Let's go to the next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas asks, Permissionless 2 is the world's largest DeFi event. 7,000 plus crypto enthusiasts and builders, September 11th to the 13th at the Austin Convention Center. What is DeFi? Why permissionless? Can you do this in 15 seconds, John? Because I didn't realize we're close to our queue here. Yeah, so so DeFi is is the DeFi centralization of finance, right? And so Bitcoin is is decentralized finance. You don't need permission to do make a transaction. I just make a transaction. I don't need a central bank do involved in my transaction and all. That's what that means. Okay, great. Uh, We've been talking about IBC. We are coming up on IBC for this year, and it's very close. And we're going to roll a little piece of film for you to give you an idea of what Office Hours is doing for this. We'll be right back after that with our second hour topic.
European members of the Office House community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours Live from the exhibition floor. Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies. And this year, we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved, over on officehours.global slash IBC. Today we're doing our brainstorming session about the Office Hours website. So if you're interested in uh, our website or website talk in general, this is your day. If you have any suggestions, ideas, links, or needs that could be met by the Office Hours web team, then, well, this is your day to sign, uh, shine. Any suggestions or things? We've got a couple of things that are already in the queue, and I see a bunch of questions backed up. Again, we are not trying to solve problems today. This is our gathering information about what you would like to see in this area, um, what questions you have, what what features that maybe the website is not presenting to you now that might be uh, useful in the future. So these ideas are all going to go back to our web development team, and they're going to be able to sort through them and figure out which ones are implementable and which ones would be a benefit. So uh, let's start off. I think uh, I think we just go to the first question here because we're looking for your ideas. And we're going to keep doing this as long as our question's coming in. We may end a little short today if there aren't a ton of questions about website, uh, about our website, the Office Hours website. But if you have them, put them in now. It's the time. Let's go to the first question. First question comes from Brett Below in Appleton, Wisconsin. Improved searching and search results page with tags and additional context. Show date, short descriptions, panelist details in search results. For example, search for NDI. It's difficult to quickly find the latest NDI-related show or lab. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't. Uh, yeah, I use the website a good little bit because I I go to some of the areas that are talking about the shows upcoming and starting to prepare for the shows. But I don't do a lot of searching on past shows, so I'm not sure how much uh, uh, how close that is. I do know, and I want to give props to the back end crew who has been working the website for the past three or four years. There's so much content up there. Think about that. We've got we've got two hours of video every day plus. All the subtopics that are covered, I know for a lot of times there was scraping of individual questions and linkages to that. So there's a very complex back end on our website. And uh, all the people who are responsible for it, I just think, do an absolutely outstanding job of making it work. But uh, if search isn't working, great. Thank you for putting the note in. And I'm sure the team will spend more time working on that. It did get a lot of votes. So I think this is uh, exactly what we're looking for, some ideas. And thank you, Brett, for putting in yours first. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes from Brett Below in Appleton, Wisconsin. The ability to add shows, labs, or other special events to calendar via ICS file. So I've had some, I've had reasonably good suggestions with iCal or ICS files. Um, the thing is, there are multiple, you know, that that is one um, 
what, what am I trying to say? It, it's one ecosystem. The Apple ecosystem and ICS, iCal ca- uh, calendar system. Um, and I use that a lot, but I just hope that it's not so Mac-oriented that it doesn't take care of the people on the other side of that. Has anybody had any suggestions on the panel uh, in terms of, uh, do we have any of our non-Mac users here who have managed to get calendar stuff in there? I guess not. I'm not seeing any any smiles or nods here. So um, I have a sketchy history of getting iCals from other people. Uh, most of those work, but whenever somebody sends me a calendar uh, invitation or something like that out of another system, I, I have maybe maybe at best a 50% strike rate of getting things in correctly. Alexander, what's your experience, Ben? Well, I just want to actually say I think this is a good idea because for me, I don't know about everybody else, but if something is not on my calendar, it effectively isn't happening. Uh, So I just find that Discord overall as useful and valuable as it has been. I just find it's a little overwhelming. There's so many different channels, so many different things going on. So sometimes it can be a little bit hard to keep up with what events are happening where. So some other way to add uh, an event to a calendar I think would be very useful. Yeah, I've I've run across the same kind of thing. And it's interesting. Um, You're right. For many, many people, if it's not on your primary calendar, whatever you've designated that to be, it just doesn't exist in your life. It's the one place you look. I do like the fact that, you know, when I was younger in the business, uh, calendars didn't talk to each other. And boy, thankfully, the last 10 or 15 years, um, that ability to synchronize calendars across all your devices has come in so handy. That's pretty much the default now. But again, I noticed that when, you know, most of the back end of the, uh, of this show runs on, um, the Google platform as opposed to the, um, iCal kind of platform. And in trying to get the two to instantly and successfully and 100% communicate with each other seems to have been a little bit of a challenge over the course of the time. Uh, I know those generic calendar service interchange things like iCal and the rest of that, or ICS files, uh, were supposed to help with that. I'm not sure it's entirely there yet, but yeah. Uh, Auto calendaring to everybody who needs access to the show, if they can ever get it to really talk to everything else and work beautifully, would be a huge plus. I still run into that challenge almost every day. Let's get to the next question. Next question comes from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Ohio. What efforts are required to ensure accessibility? There's so much written about website accessibility. I know it's a huge thing. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm most proud of in, in office hours just in general is the amount of time we've taken over the last six months at least uh, to address a address of disability concerns. Well, bad, bad language here. Anyway, uh, you know, really reaching out. Uh, that part of our mission statement is to be here for everyone. Uh, the actual phrasing is so that no one is left behind. And I know Alex takes that very seriously and the show takes that very seriously. So we will continue to explore accessibility and calendar accessibility is a piece of that, whether it's translation of calendar events into something spoken or a large format or something else. Uh, I know we'll always continue to try to pursue that. Alexander, do you have thoughts about this? Yeah, I, I do. And, you know, I, I apologize. I'm blanking on the name, but I seem to recall 
uh, Leo Laporte talking about an accessibility service that you can pay for where it scans your website and it gives you all sorts of suggestions. And sometimes, you know, there are very small tweaks you can make to really improve the overall accessibility, which, as you said, Bill, I mean, that's super important to what we do and that accessibility just makes the experience better for everyone. So I'm curious if we are using that and if, if we aren't, maybe are there plans to do that? But I definitely think it's something we have to focus on for sure. It's all part of our brand promise. And I know I, when I'm reading things, try to, if I see something or if I know that something I'm looking at is not uh, immediately translatable for somebody who may be, for example, vision impaired, uh, I do my best to try to break that down. I try to use less acronyms so that, you know, somebody doesn't have to look things up as much. And I just think being aware of the accessibility, it's not score so much as um, uh, whether or not it is seamlessly accessible to the largest possible audience is a very, it's a thing we've been interested in from the end. And thanks to Alex, it's been a, it's been a focus on the shows. I will say, I was astonished when we started doing those accessibility days, particularly the focus ones. That was the first time that my sister who watches the show occasionally, I think just because I occasionally host it, uh, just pinged me afterwards and said, what a fabulous hour. She was more excited about that show that I had nothing to do with. I wasn't even on it. I think it was on a, a Saturday. She watched that and said that that was singularly one. And she has no disabilities. She just, as a as a regular viewer, said that that was one of the most illuminating and intriguing shows that we did. So it just shows you there are people who are paying attention, and we are going to continue to pay attention to try to do that. So thank you for bringing it up. Let's move on to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, what theme is the Office Hours website using and what theme could be used to improve it? Sadly, we don't have uh, any of the the team here specifically from the website. I had hoped that maybe we would get uh, some of the folks in, but um, I don't think so. So I don't know the, the particular theme that they are using. Uh, put that in the show when Alex is back. He might know. And uh, yeah, unfortunately... I'm ignorant of that. So let's go to the next one. Next question comes from Juan de la Espadrilis. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, from Oregon, an interactive map for a treasure hunt of different panelists, different topics, different questions of where things are talked about in the show and when. Oh, you want a treasure hunt? Uh, what, are there prizes? What <laughs> the liberty? <laughs> I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, what gets me with this question even more so is the ability to really, there's so many jewels and gems in each and every show. And we have the volume of, of content on office hours. Like, how do you parse that out in a way that people can get quickly to what they need. So in that that would be my thing, um, in addition to what Juan says here of just like, yes, how can we quickly get to specific topics and, and the the organization? And and it, it may be something that takes a much longer time <laughs> than us having this conversation uh, today, but that would be tremendously helpful. So Juan, I'm right there with you. Aren't the shows that go to YouTube, aren't they indexed somehow? It seems to recall the last time I watched one, there was a little pop-up at the bottom and it showed the questions. Now, that's not the information inside the questions, which is a deeper level of tagging or 
specifics. And I'm not sure, considering we generate so much content, I mean, you know, 1,400 or something days that we've been doing this every single day, um, that's a ton of content. So finding a specific nugget of information is always going to be a bit challenging, but at least to know which guests were there. I know I've had the circumstance where I've gone back and, and somebody talked about this. Now, who was it? Oh, let me go back and look at the archive on the website, which is really good because you can go back to particular years and you can go back to uh, guests. So if I remember which guest it was, I can say, oh, they were on the show four times. Here are the four shows and watch or scan through them to see if that information can be revealed. Um, I've done that before and it, it, 60, 70% of the time I'm successful in finding it. Sometimes I just misremember who it was or what they did. John Preto, you had some thoughts. Today's episode 1263 and I have all that database, all that stuff in the database, Bill. I have oh, all, the, cool. all the guests, all that stuff, and I'm going to have a web interface so you guys will be able to query that from the awesome. web. Awesome. Trying to find all that stuff via YouTube is, is a pain. Um, and so all that information uh, for panelists, for guests, um, the show itself, all those databases are created. We're trying to create a web interface so that you guys can access those. That it would be awesome. Thank you. Uh, Liberty, you had a follow-up comment? Yeah, just to your comment of like using YouTube and and thankfully John stepped in to share that yes on the website because for those that are that are coming to the website so that they can get specific data and or even for the SEO aspects the search engine optimization aspects of it of like having that and and my focus being more so on just being able to quickly search and access that so. Um, that's exciting to see. And John, how is that going to play out? If you can, I don't know if you can share more details of, are we looking at, is that in a couple months? Alex, is that in yeah, another? it's going to be a ways yeah. out. Alex has to, yeah. it's all, it's all up to Alex, what he wants to expose. I have access to all the databases and they're right now they're in different modalities. I'm trying to integrate them all into Postgres SQL. And then the, once they're in that one database, we can throw that up on the host and then, Alex can decide what he wants to make transparent. Copy that. And, uh, oh, Liberty had come back, so this was just a conversation. Sorry, I was checking something else while I was trying to listen at the same time. Uh, let's sneak on. We have a good group of questions already coming in, but remember, you can always ask more. And we will go today just as long as we still have questions up to the top of the hour. If we need to end a little bit early, that's fine, too. So let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, how is the Office Hours website hosted? Is it running on Linux LAMP? Um, again, I'm not, I don't know that much about the technical back end. Um, I know it's, well, John Preto, do you have more details? So reach out to Ken. He built it and he was running a, a WordPress um, theme. I can't remember the theme. It's a card-based theme. And I'm almost positive now that's migrated off of Ken's infrastructure onto Alex's infrastructure, but it's WordPress. So, yes, it's it's running on LAMP. And it really does function quickly and well, and it is a beautiful-looking website. I give Ken a lot of credit as a really skilled web designer for having put that all together. Well done. Uh, let's go to the next question. All right, this one comes from me. Is the Office Hours website managed by multiple people? Are we spreading the content management load so that no one is spread thin and updates are done promptly? 
I know there's more than one person back there. Ken Jordan is the the chief uh, website builder, but there are other people and too many names for me to remember right now. But when I've dealt with uh, needing to upload content into the website or training things or whatever I've done, uh, I've dealt with other people as well. So there is a at least a small team behind it. It's not just one person. And I think it reflects that because there's a lot, there's a lot more depth there than I sometimes thought. Most of it's driven by the daily content, but there are other things in the background. There's there's training content. There are uh, other. It's worth exploring. It's it's a reasonably deeply constructed repository of a lot of office hours information. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can the Office Hours website feature clips organized by topic, especially funny clips like Fenwick's comments on psychopaths <laughs> using split keyboards and noise, air pollution masks? Can someone make a mid-journey graphic of a masked person at a split keyboard? That would be hysterical, Paul. Um, I, you know, I, I could, I would vote in favor of the best of Fenwick, a little sub page somewhere in there with, with. Uh, Fenwick at his most grumpy. Some mornings he's uh, obviously gotten up on the wrong side of the bed, and those are some of the the days with Chris that I like best. Uh, so, yeah, it's possible. Liberty, thoughts? Yeah, Paul, I think this is actually a, a pretty neat idea since it is the idea of uh, around community, like office hours around this global community where there could be, yes, there are the funny aspects, but then maybe there are some more international or cultural things that can be leveled up um, within the the website. So that that's a good one. And that's an end. If you're watching any more ideas of what could be, you know, just grouping and, and helping, what are some of the sub groups within or communities within office hours, it could be a, an interesting way to even draw other people into the community. I'm putting my flag, though, in the ground. I am not going to allow the dumbest things Bill has said on the show because it would take way too much time to go through that. And so nada. What not about happening. Bill's best riffs? Because you have some amazing <laughs> riffs that would, yeah. We should have one and a half minutes of uh, yeah, <laughs> but yes, anyway, yeah. How, how, how to stretch one minute of content into four minutes before the top of the hour. <laughs> I could write an article about that. There's a maybe. master class there, I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> Let's go on to the next question. Next question is comes from Brett Below in Appleton, Wisconsin, an area of the website for the pets of office hours with Mr. Knight's adorable lap cat and all the other cats, dogs, birds, and rabbits that have made cameo appearances <laughs> on office hours and after hours. That would be adorable. I'm not sure if it's uh, particular to our mission, but we all love them. Uh, that was one of these things, Pet PetSmart on their website for a long time. Every corporate officer photo had their pet in it. I thought that was really on brand and consistent. I know a lot of us does. I don't want to leave, make anybody feel left out who doesn't, you know, because pet ownership always is a responsibility and some people are in the right place and they can do that. And some people definitely are not, but I'd have Charlie come in and, and take a selfie with him or, or a web shot capture and do that. So cool idea. Thanks, Brett. Let's move on to the next one. Next question comes from Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada. Possibly a dynamic countdown or count up for members around the world. Show off the reach. 
You know, it's interesting. From the time we started doing the Tlaloc Traversal, and everybody knows it at the end of the show, one of the stats that we pop up on the screen uh, that we read out is how far we've traveled. And I think that's an aggregate of if you had, you know, every, somebody comes in from Poland, I'm just making that up out of nowhere, uh, we calculate how far you would have had to travel to sit with that person and get that information, that interaction back. And we aggregate it into how far we have traveled to get the information in the show. Um, all of that stuff is, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the show because we are a global show. I'm constantly surprised at where people come in from and the reach of this. So I like the idea, uh, Roz, of what you're suggesting to do even more to um, indicate the, the challenge is, at one point when we were kind of putting this idea of the Tlaloc Traversal in play, we had a, a thought about doing an animated thing that before a question, the globe would come up and you would see where the show was hosted in Northern California. And there would be a line that would be drawn out to where the question was coming in from. Then we do the question and uh, I don't know whether there's a line back to there or whatever. It it turned out that it slowed down the flow of the show so much that it really turned out to be not a viable idea. So we went back to simply just reading off the name of the place everybody came in from. But it's certainly, uh, I think one of the great charms is when we have questioners from literally all over the world and it keeps the brand promise of officehours.global. So uh, I'm all for it. And um, you're, you're, Query is in the mix. Let's hope that there's more there. Let's go to the next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway asks, what an office hours related resources page with best practices and general tips for Zoom meetings, audio and lighting, etc. could be useful? We've talked about that. You know, here's the here's the it's not really a problem, but this is all volunteer driven. So, uh I'm uh, I'm gobsmacked at the amount of volunteer effort that goes into putting this show on every day. When we had an idea, and I've had them myself said, oh, I could do this. I have to balance that against the time it takes to execute that at a level that office hours should have, because we don't just toss things together. We usually put some effort into everything that we do here. Um, and I just have to balance, does adding more volunteer time on top of the volunteer time I already devote to this at, makes sense right now. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It, I think it's a really good idea. There are tons of best practices that come out of this show. And I know other panelists are probably like I am in terms of the fact that my notepad from just tips that I've gotten by being a panelist on this show is gigantic now. In fact, I probably should go back and review it more often because there's so much wisdom that is passed along on this show. Uh, more formalizing it into a resources page. There are things in the Discord. That's one of the places you should look. If you haven't explored the Discord for office hours closely, you might want to spend some time over there because there are, uh, particularly in the top section, links to uh, questions that have happened on the show and other things that uh, could be a, a resource for a lot of this. So just some thoughts, but great suggestion. Thank you. Let's go to the next question. Next suggestion. David Brady from New York, New York. What about a deep speech to text scrape that would allow for keyword phrase searches? I don't know, John. Is there anything in, in AI that could do something like that with this much content? 
That seems like an awfully big yeah. Lift. So so we've been we've been looking at this, and the problem is our database isn't isn't large enough in order for it to get over the value proposition curve. Okay. And so we start with the foundational model, and then we would add our content on type. But but that's that's kind of where our thinking is that if we if we could build this database up, if we could possibly index all the YouTube videos and build a big enough database, it might be useful in the future. Yes. Okay. So that's just a scale issue, and we haven't quite reached that. As long as we've been doing this, it has many things. We just don't have data of that scale. Um, but David. Good suggestion, and we'll keep it in the back of our minds. It sounds like something that eventually could be a part of what we're doing. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is back. Are the website stats publicly viewable? Any idea of how many hits, visitors, length of stay? What stats package is Office Hours using? I'm sure they exist back there. Alex has always articulated that he has different metrics for, I'm going to put this in scare quotes, success, than many other uh websites do. He does, I know, for example, that he doesn't particularly care uh, so much about number of people who pop in and peep out, uh, pop out. So the, the aggregate number of viewers, he's more concerned with dwell time, how long people stay and find value in this before they leave. And he's always looking for things that make the website stickier as opposed to just more populated. Uh, but I might be misstating that, but if you're interested in it, follow up. I'm sure as data-oriented and as technology-oriented as our entire crew is, I'm sure that stuff is being, uh, what's the right word for it? Not archived, but stuff is being tracked like that. I don't know how much of it he's interested in, in making public-facing or not. That's something you'd have to ask Alex about. So let's go to the next question. All right, this next one's for me. Adding a live streaming player on the homepage, I just wanted to add some uh, context. Actually, I meant audio live streaming player. Well, uh, there is an audio live stream in the, is it in the Discord? Where's the little clickable button that lets you just listen to this on a phone or something like that? Is that the web page or is that Discord? I think that's in the Discord. Uh, whoops. I think Mickey's trying to get to me, and for some reason it's not functioning. Sorry about that. Um Anyway, there, we do have some live streaming. I think um, I think it was an IceCast stream or something like that that used it. I'm not sure if it's still up there. I haven't seen it in a while. But then again, I don't go looking for that ever. But um, I know on it's one of the, the portal. Mokana light in, mode. That. The Mukana light. Okay, so if you're in the Mukana system for Q&A, Mukana light has next to it a little speaker icon, and you can punch that, and you can listen to the show remotely. I've done that when I've been out on the road uh, during shows that I've missed, so... Yeah, something's there. I do know that Alex was trying to do more integrations. And as he becomes more and more interested in the radioization, that's not a word, but you get what I mean, uh, then that's kind of where we're going maybe with that. So the audio section of this show is as important as anything that we do on this show. So the fact that it's potential for turning into some kind of radio content that can be accessible more easily. In fact, I think they're working on a radio app maybe in the back for that kind of thing. But some ideas. But thank you, Alexander. Yeah, we'll definitely, I think, keep going more into the lines of making the audience more, make the audio more accessible to more people every day on the show. Let's go on to the next question. 
Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada asks, can we put a small banner saying that access is a free sign-up rather than having to read within, possibly not knowing what sign-ups involve? The top of join us. It needs to be a quick clarification. I think that's a good comment, Roz. Yeah, I was over there for the first time. I, you know, because I've been a part of the show for a long time, I have not been near the sign-up page. But I was directed over there in one of our discussions the other day, and I noticed that it's a pretty simple thing. Uh, that and the, the, you know, uh, here's what this means to sign up. I know sometimes people are, are hesitant to put uh, particular data into a website. I, I would like to think that we are very trustworthy and we do have a lot of security and uh, our database is protected and the rest of that. But I know people are hesitant about that. So yeah, um, good good suggestion. And I'm sure this will get to the crew and they'll see if there's more that can be done. I agree the fact that it's for free is one of the amazing value propositions of office hours. Let's go to the next question. Talalak Lopez Waterman, Norfolk, VA. Maybe we can add a glossary of terms and acronyms. You know, it's funny you mention that because I'm dealing with that in a couple of different groups that I respond to. You know, the jargon. We're all, I mean, this is a tech group. And boy, there's so much jargon. I know uh, Mitch and I both try when we can to deconstruct initialisms and um, all of the things that, you know, after a certain point, you don't want to keep explaining what NDI means over and over and over again. But we try to do it at least reasonably often often for the people coming in quickly. Uh, But I do understand your point, Laluk. We use a lot of terminology here, and and sometimes it can be hard to follow threads. So it's a point well taken. And maybe uh, in the the reader training that Mitch does, maybe we can put a little more emphasis on that as well. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes from Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. A place for members to upload photos and videos or tag themselves to show how they connect to the community. Uh, Interesting, Kyle. Uh, A little more social, a little more connection to the people. I know there are some bios. I think that was done during a period where I was away from the show and on the road uh, maybe a couple of years ago. So I don't have a bio up there, but I know a lot of people do, and uh, that'd be interesting. John Prado? Yeah, Alex has, Alex has talked about this, and we've got the infrastructure because I've got the database, um, and so this is all this is all Alex. I I think it's a great idea, uh, as long as the people edited their profile themselves, we we could have the mechanism to do, pull that off. That's all, Alex. Ooh, even better, let's have each of us do someone else. <laughs> we can make up stuff about them, and no one would ever know. <laughs> So I could give you a Nobel Prize, John. That'd be fun. No, I'm just being facetious. Uh, The answer is, yeah, I I do think people after we've been doing it this long are probably at least somewhat interested in our biographies, where we came from, how we got the expertise that we have, if we have any. Uh, So I know most everyone does. I'm just talking about myself. So next question. David Brady is back from New York, New York. Now that the radio app is out, a reminder to announce links when applicable. While driving, I can't scan a QR code, but reading out the URL would be handy. I think we're very close to that. I think the radio app is still in uh, test flight, which is means that it's not actually published yet. Uh, 
if if you're in the Apple ecosystem in test flight, I think you can run it. But I don't think it's general public aware yet. Uh, I'm looking really forward to that. I think that'll be great if we can get an app that allows you to literally just uh, pop into the show. And that's the kind of thing that Alex has planned for and thought about. So I think it's coming. Stand by. Next question. Liberty White from Atlanta and here on the panel. What is the goal slash purpose of the Office Hours global website? Uh, We have actually a mission statement, and I don't know it off the top of my head. I remember that my favorite part of it is something about a global community where no one is left behind. I think that's always been uh, one of the brand promises that has struck near and dear to my heart. Liberty? Yeah, so I asked that question. We always ask that with any project, any client that we're dealing with is like, what's the goal? So we're having this conversation about the website. And while we're speaking about features and things that we would like to see, which is fantastic, but then it's like going back to the root of it. It's like, okay, so what's the purpose of the website? Is it informational? Is it supposed to bring community together? Is it trying to spotlight? And since this is going to be now maybe like, the second, I would say, if I remember correctly, um, I've been here since like 2020 mid-year um, then is like, what does it need to look like and say? Um, so that's why I was asking the goal and even giving thought or language to to that for some of us on the panel that our thoughts around that. So that could also help inform some of the things that we that are added to the website because it speaks to to the goal of what the purpose of the website Hopefully that makes sense. Very well observed. No, very well observed. I mean, you know, I think this is core to any kind of effort that's public facing is to try to figure out why are we, why why make any changes? The the why question, because if you don't ask the why question, why are you changing things if you change things, um, then you're just randomly adding things because you can add them. But the why question, once solved gives you a lot more clarity. At least that's been my experience in in my career adjacent to advertising and marketing. If you don't get the fundamentals of the why right, it's really easy to go off track and spend too much time on things that don't meet that fundamental top-line goal of why you're doing something. So, yeah, that'd be a good thought. Thanks. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas asks, the About Us is a little bit dated can it be made a little more relevant with pictures of folks who are more currently involved? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I I do know that, again, like everything else around here, this is a volunteer effort. So uh, people put in work, and if the work is still good and it's it's surviving there, I mean, this isn't something where there's a giant revenue steam being driven by office hours. So having resources to come back and revisit it, tune it up and tune it up can sometimes be a challenge, but that doesn't mean it's not a valid point here. Uh, Refreshing of the website and getting older, outdated information off and getting the new stuff in is, of course, a key to making any website more useful. You want to get rid of old stuff and get the new stuff in. So point well taken, Paul. Next question. Talalak Lopez Waterman in Norfolk, VA asks, it may be cool to have a large map of screenshots of shows over the years show the progression. 
<laughs> it'd be scary to look back at some of those early shows. I actually, I, I've been taking screenshots every in in infrequent but consistent things over the years. And when I look back at some of the early days, it really shocks me how far the design and professionalism of this program has come. It was a very different thing back in those early pandemic days when we were all just gathering here together. John Preto? This would be great, Telok. I, I I have a screenshot of every day, um, and then I have a video of day one also. So we have all this data. You know, we should gather that together, and if nothing else, do a time lapse. Uh, that's pretty simple to do. I so. did one, and Chris didn't like it, so we were going to show it as a thousandth episode. Really? Huh. Yeah, I put them all on a timeline and just went. Interesting. Well, let's 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 talk about let's you and I talk about that. Maybe we can find some some way to do that because I've done quite a few of those for clients over the course of the time. Uh, yeah. Next question. John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma asks: Fifteen years of professional web development under my belt. Happy to lend a hand on the website if Office Hours needs another resource. Oh, that'd be very cool. You should reach out. Uh, go into Discord. Uh, track down Ken Jordan. He's kind of our webmaster and the person who's most in charge of that. And let him know what you do. And, and uh, he can figure out whether or not the things that need to get done and the crew that needs to do it, whether the, there's places that you could add in. That's great. Uh, so definitely ping him, uh, ping them. And uh, you can do that through Discord or I think through uh, the website, one or one or the other. Thanks. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. I think we need to show graphics a lot more. For example, the pollution mask and split keyboard questions today could have benefited from showing them. Pump up the ease of showing links that are referenced in questions. So it's a good point, Paul. We, and we've we've... So once upon a time, we had a graphics coordinator for the show, and their job was these questions are coming in in real time. So we get them if we get them ahead of time, people can do that. Um, in the early days, the graphics coordinator would would spend time and take the bad backgrounds out. And what I'm saying by that is that when we, we were dealing with a lot of HDR content stuff, and we were trying to figure it out uh, a standard website page that's mostly white would be challenging because, let's face it, uh, as we move into HDR and things like that, a big white flash can be difficult for the people who are who watching in HDR. So they would take elements off of a web page for a product that we were going to be mentioning and copy that out of there and put it on a, on a better background, a darker background or something that would be more web-friendly, prepare that, and when the question came along, we would show that graphic. Over the course of time, it's been hard to keep that kind of position filled for the show. Um, so right now, I think most of us, when we want to show something, we've got systems with usually an ATEM or something like that near us. We can pull up a website graphic, just switch to it in the line of our question to show people what we're talking about. But we seldom do that for every answer that we have to do. And it's just a matter of whether you can find the information, how early the question comes in, and whether or not there's a graphic that's that's relevant that you can do it. Um, it it's just adds a little more thing, but you know, we do it when we can. Next question. Telolic Lopez Waterman in Norfolk, VA. Looks like he's suggesting bloopers to the website. Yeah, everybody loves bloopers. And guys knows I've had enough things that I've foolishly said the wrong way or completely got lost with that yeah, I could probably do a reel just for myself. But I think everybody, you know, there are those moments of things 
either didn't work right or were humorous or we went off on a tangent. And it, again, it's just a matter of the time it takes to gather those things. I do know for anniversary shows, we look back at the anniversary shows and we do try to find kind of highlight moments of things that have happened on office hours. Um, Maybe as John indexes everything, it'll become easier and easier for us to go back and mine some of the past best moments. Right now, I think it's a lot of work. Let's go on to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can each show have its own topic on the website linked to comments in Discord or some other community commenting plugin? Okay, that's a good suggestion. I don't know uh, what the complexity of plumbing that into things is, but maybe. Uh, so thank you for the suggestion, and, and let's look at it. Paul has uh, at least one more coming. Paul, or next question. Yeah, Paul's last question is, I have a friend who runs the website, R-U-W-H, sorry, R-U-W-T. Are you watching this for sports? Example, game tied in not the ninth. Can Office Hours have an alert system from when Office Hours is heating up with critical mass and riveting conversations? Maybe text messages based like R-U-W-T. Yeah, he's, he's looking for something that will signal you for after hours when the conversation is heating up. I know Alex was just talking about this the other day. He has something in his uh, office where he can pop into it. Um, yeah, a heat index kind of thing for when there's a number of people and they're having a lively discussion to let people know that that's a place that they may want to take a quick look at. Sounds like a really good idea. I don't know how difficult it would be to implement, but it sounds like a possibility that could definitely be investigated. I think that's all that we have here for today. So we're going to end a little bit early today. Um, I'm just quickly zipping over to the close announcement to see if anything here. Um, no, tomorrow, Saturday, two hours of question and answer. Um, so we're going to have a standard two-hour show. If you have questions about how Office Hours operates and want to pop them in, do so now or whatever. Remember the QR code that you probably captured earlier allows you to do it 24-7. So as Alex always says, as soon as you have an idea and say, I should ask that on office hours, just go ahead and go in there and pop it in. And that's all you need to do. Um, huge thanks, as every day, to all the producers, to all the panelists. Um, the crew and the back-end people. Uh, those of you who are probably just consuming the show and haven't been around for a long time have no clue how many people work and how hard they work to make this possible every day. And we do it as a labor of love. Nobody gets paid around here for any of this stuff. We just do it because we all came up and remembered how important, not important, critical it was when somebody helped us, gave us a hand up, helped us learn a technology or a technique or something that increased our ability to advance in our careers. And most of us are here simply because we are happy to try to share some of what we spent um, our careers learning with other people. It's one of the great benefits of office hours is people coming together to share knowledge and hopefully advance everyone's ability to do this work. Um, so thank you. Thank you, the producers. Thank you for everybody who asks questions. Thank you for the crew and back end who are unsung and sit back there. When we roll credits here in just a couple of seconds, you will see a long list of names. These people are important because they're the ones who make it happen every single day. Thank you for watching Office Hours. After Hours is 24-7, always on. And that wraps up for today. See you tomorrow.